This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. There is not much question that the world of tech, especially Silicon Valley, is a unique one. Some of that is very good. Some of that, though, does have its drawbacks. The early days of Silicon Valley were hopeful times for change ahead, even though they contain some of the same cultural issues as today. But now, as the sector is mainstream, there may even be more concerns about how this digital culture affects our culture in general. Ellen Ullman spent many years in that world as a computer programmer. She's also quite the author. You may remember her Close to the Machine book, which was published back in 1997. And she follows that up with her latest, which is Life in Code, a personal history in technology. And a pleasure to welcome Miss Ullman to our show right now. Great to have you, Ellen. Oh, it's my pleasure. Uh, so, I mean, what I found interesting in going through this book is this truly is, uh, this is a personal history of what you have recognized over the last, what, couple of decades, uh, your experiences and the, the culture in general in the tech sector. Yes. Uh, what I try to do in Life and Code is have snapshots, I suppose you'd say, or a stop motion of what has happened in the last 20-odd years to place each in time and so we can uh, see what happened in the evolution of technology during that era, what changed and what did not change. And and it is basically essays, things that you wrote down in the course of time. Uh, What do you see as, either positively or negatively, the greatest change around this sector over the last 20 years? First, um, I'm often associated with discussing the downside of technology. Sure. And I do because I'm, I'm a skeptic, and I think that's important. But I'd like to say, first of all, that I'm also a lover of technology. I couldn't have spent all those years working in programming and software engineering if I didn't have a certain love and passion for the work. So let's just say that right away. Sure. And many of the men I work with were a lovely man and uh, helped me. I was self-taught, so I had to learn from my colleagues, and they were very helpful for the most part. Then there were those who were, let's say, the guys in the treehouse who were determined to, uh, you know, no girls allowed uh, sign on the door. Right. What is it that got you started in terms of going down this road and and in wanting to be somebody to work in this industry for for the long period of time that you did? Oh, it's a long story, which I will try to condense. Okay. (laughs) I was an English major, and I never imagined going into technology. I then encountered a group called the Ithaca Video Project, and it was a time uh, that Sony released a small machine called the Portapack, And that was a a revolution in technology, I think one of those turning point moments. You could make videos by yourself or with a small group. And in contrast to the enormous uh, corporations that controlled broadcasting, so it it broke uh, a line of domination in, in, in media. We could go out and make videos about whatever subject we wanted, what was going on socially, political affairs, arts affairs, and there was a headiness about the sense that we were doing something that was new. Uh, It was also a time of people like Nam June Pike, who were viewing the TV screen as a canvas for art. It was an exciting time, and during that 
uh, period, I learned that I loved working with the machines. I loved carrying around the cables. I loved drawing cables across the floor, learning to edit, learning to uh, make videos. And it left me with a, with a great love of, and thinking, what could these machines do in the hands of local people who were working on their own? And then let's zoom later a few years from, let's say, 1972 to 78. I moved to San Francisco, and one day I'm walking down Market Street, and in the window of Radio Shack store, now dearly departed, there was a machine, an early microcomputer called the TRS-80, affectionately known as the Trash 80. <laughs> yes. And, you know, I thought it. <laughs> Don't ask me why. I thought, well, there's another one of these small machines. I wonder what you can do with it. Right. Then it involved programming. I found out. Of course, I knew and spent um, many months tearing my hair out. And finally, when I got my first program working, there was a sense of delight. And I went, this works. And I developed a passion for that. Well, of course, then I had to earn a living, and business computing was exploding. There was a great need for people who knew how to code. I knew how to code. I got a job. I never expected that to go on for 20-odd years. Right. But so it did because I found it exciting uh, to work in that culture, also distressing because of the, the culture inside uh, that world. I was both an insider and an outsider. I would say that I was no pioneer uh, in computing in terms of the technical aspects. I was an ordinary computer programmer. I was like the role of altos in a chorus. Right. You know, you need them for yeah. the backbone, but you don't go out singing their songs. <laughs> <laughs> that's a that's a great analogy. Exactly right. Um, I, 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 not that I want to focus on the negative either, but but it, it, with you kind of leading me into that, I, I would have be amiss if if I didn't ask you about the the current culture in Silicon Valley, which obviously obviously gets talked about a lot. And obviously, you know, when we see things pop up like what happened with Uber and and the commentary from Google uh, with uh, James Damore, uh, I, I would think it has to be. Not surprising, but but very distressing that some of these things are still going on today. It is distressing and disheartening, I would say. I encountered a great deal of hostility, uh, covert and overt, over the years as I was working, sometimes called a, a, a dumb female, stupid. And, of course, uh, the guys were pretty rough on each other, too. That was part of the rough and tumble of it, the very bitter... Uh, working to find the bugs in each other's work. But the fact that I was female added a certain edge to it, and let's say almost vicious edge. Now, the fact that that thread has been pulled through all of these years, as women have succeeded and become software engineers and computer scientists, is very distressing to me. Do you think we're getting closer and closer to a wake-up call where where these issues are concerned? I do. But... Nobody gives up power voluntarily because they go, oh, you know, gee, you're right. I think what we saw in the DeMore um, memo illustrates that there is, was and is a simmering undercurrent of men who really don't want women around because they think they are inferior. I mean, inferior in ways uh, that would lead to being a good software engineer and writer of algorithms and so forth. 
Ellen Ullman is our guest. Uh, she is the author of the book Life in Code, A Personal History of Technology. Your comments are welcome at 844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866 is the number to give us a call. What's interesting about that memo, and obviously it, it brings up a lot of things within Google itself about you know what could be going on there, but but I, I, I really do believe that there are a lot of the, the entities within Silicon Valley that are changing mindset, and not necessarily Silicon Valley always, but you know, companies in general. I mean, if you think, you know, what Hewlett Packard used to be and, and is now with Meg Whitman, uh, you know, the, the hope is that, that, you know, the leadership kind of changes the mindset. Uh, you could also cite IBM uh, yep. as a woman in charge. Yep. Uh, but dear IBM is no longer in the forefront of what is happening in technology. Right. And neither is HP. So, I don't want to diminish their uh, abilities and the very difficult time they had reaching uh, the top of the organization. They have, uh, they are no longer directing what the future of technology. Right. Uh, I hate to say, <laughs> right. they're fine companies. It is uh, Google and Apple who are driving our future. Microsoft is tailing behind, far behind. And then there are the companies like Uber who are determined to disrupt our culture in intentional ways. And that's where we have to look at what's happening. The, why is it important to bring women and other minorities into the programming culture? One, of course, it's right and it's just. But first of all, we lose talent that way. It, when yeah. you drive away entire classes of people, you say, well, I don't care what, what talent may be hiding in there. I don't need that talent. They're not going to be very good anyway. So that is uh, really detrimental to the future uh, that we as a society are getting. But the, the deeper question is that the values of the people who create this technology are place their values inside the, what they produce. The creators imbue the devices and the systems with their conscious and unconscious values. Mm -hmm. So what we need is uh, people to come in and question those values, shake it up, ask, who are the users? What is the service? And who is it intended for? What is the society that will grow around this technology? And how will that affect the larger culture and society at large? These are very big questions as technology becomes so involved intimately in our lives, from intimacy to the economic and political world. So do you, do you think that the, the mindset of programmers from back in your day is is, is similar to what we see with, with people that program here in, in the, the 20 teens? Well, back in the day, let's pull out the rocking chair. <laughs> <laughs> I apologize. I no, apologize. No, no, I say the same thing. Okay. Back in our day. Uh, is it the same thing? I, I, what I'd like to say is that, in my experience, very often, you see I'm hedging, when there is a, an, a determined effort to bring women and minorities in, there is a, a fierce backlash that happens. Right. Uh, I think we're seeing that in, in the memo from, from Google. Why do we need affirmative action? In general, you know, why can't the rhyme with riches uh, just make it on their own. Why right. do they need help? Right. And I've been to conferences that were welcoming in women, and um, I'll cite a Python conference. 
that specifically was uh, had that intention. They put up a, they had a wall in which people could put up uh, yellow post-it notes or whatever color post-it notes right. to have their reactions. And in no time at all, the messages were pornographic. Yeah. And uh, yeah. the gaming world is very similar. South by Southwest Conference in 2015 had one panel on women in gaming. Hmm. And they re- the organizers received death threats if they ran the panel. And they did not run the panel. Wow. Holy God. They put it online, but that is not the same thing as having it integrated into a culture where people are actually sitting there and participating. We're joined by Alan Ullman, who is the author of the book Life in Code, A Personal History of Technology. Your comments welcome at 844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866. Or if you can't get your phone, you can send us a comment on Twitter, and we'll bring it up on the show, at BizRadio111, or my Twitter account, which is at DanLoney21. What, what I found interesting in going through uh, your book, Ellen, is that this this truly is, I mean, this is a history uh, of of coding and of the industry. I mean, you talk about, uh, you know, some of the systems that you talk about early on. I was like, wow, I remember that, you know, from, from several uh, years ago. But I found it interesting. You, you did spend time talking about Y2K, uh, which is something that it, for those people that remember it, I mean, there was this overwhelming, consuming concern of what was going to happen to computers when we went from 1999 to 2000. And just take us into the mindset of what was going on with with computer programmers at that period of time. Well, you have to remember that up until that time, there had never been a computer that ran in a, in a, a date that did not begin with 19. Yeah. So it wasn't a bug. It was a completely rational thing to do. Why, you know, when space and memory were so limited, why, you know, repeat all those 19s? Well, we come to 2000, and all those algorithms comparing dates suddenly break down. What I think was good about uh, Y2K experience was that it revealed that, program, you know, programmers and computers were not these creating this ideal city on a hill. They were things created by people, that our society was dependent upon them and therefore vulnerable. So what all that fear uh, was generated by a a kind of a small group of people who went around holding workshops and proclaiming that, you know, society and the economy would crash, we'd go back to the 70s and so forth. But what programmers did would just get in there and just go to work. Programmers are, are practical people. They're, they sat down, rolled up their sleeves, and looked to see, well, what do we have to do? And in some cases, that was very difficult. Going back to old machine code written in the 60s without any, uh, any backup, any, any documentation was really a chore. And some of the programmers I talked to, it was very funny. They said they never expected this code to keep living. Mm-hmm. Uh, they said, well, some of it we wrote ourselves. And, and we're shocked to see that there it was still out there in the world. So danger was averted. And I held a New Year's Eve party, and we had the TV <laughs> on muted and watched, you know, the year 2000 roll across the globe, or the, the, that is the globe roll across uh, the 2000, and then nothing happened, nothing major. Now, there were small local events that weren't uh, publicized, and I wish they had been, because then the world would truly know this wasn't a hoax that we were vulnerable, hmm. 
and that all those nice programmers went to work and just kept everything running, which is the job of a programmer, keep it running. That's interesting because, I mean, when you think back to that time, it gets it gets more publicity for what didn't happen than, as you said, what actually did happen in those instances. But, but as you say, I mean, there was potentially a, a viable issue that had to be addressed there. Yes, it was no hoax. I, I was invited down to Texaco to look at uh, what they were dealing with. They were one of the very few companies that was willing to go public about what they were doing. They were working on their own systems. Uh, they showed me this uh, device that worked in real time. I mean, it, there, there are devices that have to say, right now, what is the flow of oil through this pipe, for instance? Mm-hmm. So they were, there were thousands of these, and they showed to me what happened that what, when it rolled over into, into 2000, and boom, the thing just did not know how to work. It could not display the information. And if they didn't get the right information, they had to shut down. Their entire uh, oil delivery system had to shut down. Right. So what happened, actually, as I talked to different companies, they thought, okay, we'll manage our problem. But what is everybody else doing? They had been interacting with all these other companies, all these other dependencies, and they realized these other companies were black boxes. So there was this fear of a systemic infection. We need them. We're going to send them good data. But what, what are they doing? And this is what really unnerved uh, the, the computing culture. You, uh, I, I read in, in one article, you are not somebody that uses social media very much. Uh, and, and I'd be very interested to know why you don't. Well, I think in Life and Code, I describe some of the the sense of individual losses that have happened. I think it's great. I am on Facebook. Uh, I don't live on it. Right. And I, 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 I'm sorry that so much um, of interact, so many of the interactions are through Facebook, which is kind of a controlling medium. The company changes its format. People get distressed at it and just come back. I, I think what, what changed is that when you had to rely on your neighbors, that is the people physically close to you, you had to deal with them. Maybe you didn't like them. Maybe you disagreed with them. But you all had to figure out how to tolerate each other. Mm-hmm. And that's what made a locale, a city, a town, and that made a social, and civic, a social formation and a civic life. Once you can say, I don't care about my neighbors, I don't have to interact with them, I am happy in my own group of people with whom I disagree or like to disagree with, that changes the, the whole idea of, of civic life. And that distresses me. And part of, probably in part why we see things like what happened in Charlottesville. Um, yes, and I want to say that the uh, hunkering down in your own uh, your own little culture with people who agree with you did not begin now. In 1998, we began to have a process called disintermediation that demeaned all the intermediaries, uh, including journalists, even okay. librarians, uh, critics, um, brokers of all sorts. You know, you don't need these people. They're out for themselves. You just go directly to our webpage, go directly to the Internet, and, and that's where you can exist. So if you take that, that point and you have a, imagine a big uh, 
uh, spool of thread, and you unwind it all through 20-odd years, you come to where we are now. Uh, it has come, I was going to say, fruition or culmination, and uh, one of the editors I spoke with called it an ugly blossom, and I think that is a, a perfect explanation or, or description of where we are now. Whatever one thinks of our president, it is alarming that someone with so much power would go above the heads of his own advisors. Whatever wisdom there is in the government around him, distrust everyone, including his, his closest family, right. and, and change his mind and talk directly to what he imagines are the people. I wanted to take a second and also ask you, because um, one of the, the topics that's been discussed, we've talked about it on this show, and it's been brought up uh, from time to time, is the the kind of the digital reliance that we have in our society right now. And obviously, we're at a point where, you know, it's not like all of a sudden smartphones and computers are, are going to vanish uh, because we are too reliant on them. Uh, what impact do you think that they will continue to have not only on our society, but a lot of people have talked about the concern about what the impact is going to be on jobs. You know, what what are we going to look like uh, as a business culture, you know, in, in 20, 30, 50 years because of, of the reliance that we have on these on these items in our lives right now? Well, I regret to say I'm not a futurist. If things I yeah. talked about yeah. uh, years back uh, have proven uh, to be true, I, some of that I really regret. I'm sorry that things I looked at 15 years ago have turned out to be true. I, I look at things as they are now okay. and try to identify where we are, and I leave it to the people in the future to, to think about what they're doing, to be skeptical and also joyful. I can't live without an iPhone. I think it's a tremendous advance, right. I have to say. On jobs, um, it's, it's, we've already seen this. There's been a great deal of automation already. The uh, industrial uh, sector, of course, has been hit very hard. Robots do a decent job of putting a car together. Whenever yeah. there's repetitive work, robots are good at it. They don't get tired. Of course, they break. Uh, human beings also get tired. And we've already seen the displacement in, in the industrial world and the tremendous social change and the dissatisfaction and anger that has engendered, perhaps leading to the, uh, the results of the recent election. Yes, that will continue. And the, I, I envision uh, the only thing I hope for is that the general public will learn something about coding. I don't mean become yeah. professional programmers, but demystify algorithms to know that the code around them is written by people and can be changed by people. In other words, to become participants in the development of technology. Now, I'll say there is one danger among several, that we now have something called machine learning in artificial intelligence. Yeah. And these are programs that write programs that write programs that write programs to the extent that the programmers themselves, the original uh, writers of the code, may not know what indeed is happening anymore, and sometimes there are disastrous uh, results. Uh, I can cite one, but it escapes my mind right now. In Life and Code, I, I try to look at where we are now and try to take a hard look at it and say, 
look, everyone, be skeptical, ask questions about all this. And that's what I hope will will go on in the future. Well, and and I think it's important also to bring up the fact that we are seeing a little bit of a shift in terms of coding uh, of you know, more programs, more interest within schools of teaching coding as an element of the education system, which seemingly going off of of what you have kind of laid out in your book, uh, you know, up until uh, at this point, it becomes important, as you kind of alluded to, to just, even if you don't go into coding, to have an understanding of it. Yes. uh, Going back to this, though, I want to say, first of all, that I don't believe knowledge of computing uh, joins the canon of what students should learn. The humanities and history and science are the basis of what we need to learn as a society. Ironically, what's happening in computing in the deepest levels, uh, places like Google, they find they need some philosophers and English majors and people who have thought deeply about how people organize themselves in the past. I think this uh, learning to code should be uh, an adjunct uh, to those uh, branches of learning. I want people to just flood into those segregated coding rooms, as I think of them. I want them to bring new values and new thoughts, if they can, as much as they can. And also, you know, there is the side effect of, of job retraining, that people can enter the, the beginning levels, uh, web page development. There's a lot of tools that make that easy, and those become uh, entryways into uh, working in the technology world. I will say there's another danger in that, in that coding itself is becoming routinized uh, for the easiest tasks. We have tools that write tools that create web pages, for instance. So I worry that there is automation affecting even the programming world. So I don't have the answer to this, except to send up an alert and hope that people will think deeply about this and, and find other ways to organize society in ways that are not so dependent uh, upon coding and programming and the sort of devices that are created inside a segregated world composed mainly of uh, white and Asian men. Great having you on the show, Ellen. Thank you very much for your time today. It is a, it is a fantastic book. Thank you for giving us a few minutes today. Okay, I'm glad you enjoyed the book. Thank you. Ellen Ullman, the book is Life in Code. It just came out, A Personal History of Technology. It is available in bookstores and online. A very entertaining book uh, to really kind of get a a sense of, of what tech was, what it is today as well. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. 